Well, good morning, Journey Church International. How are you this morning? Hey, if you've got tickets for the Chiefs game, you're going to be late. Just telling you. Not crazy late, just a little late, so it's fine. Hey, you know, last night I almost changed the whole topic of my message. I want to speak about grace, but last night I almost thought, I want to preach on the second coming of Jesus. And uh, then the Jayhawks lost the football game, and I thought, well, maybe Jesus isn't coming back today. If you're a Jayhawk fan, you understand that very well. Anyway, let, let me pray, and then we'll jump into this text. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, we're grateful for each person here. Thank you that each person here brings a story. Um, sometimes we bring burdens that are too heavy to carry, sins that we are so tired of hiding. We bring guilt. We bring shame. Father, we want to bring it all to you this morning, and we pray that as we hear a message about gospel grace. Father, we pray that truth would bring deep life and heart, real transformation. Father, we're praying by your Holy Spirit that lives would be changed in this time and it would be for our good and for your glory. We entrust this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with an unusual quote here. Here's the quote. Any two algorithms are equivalent when their performance is averaged across all possible problems from David Wolpert and William McCready. You think, well, that's kind of a strange quote to start with. What in the world does that mean? These are two really smart guys that came up with this statement years and years ago, and it didn't take any traction. It didn't happen with anybody. So they said, we need to give this a name. And so they called this the theorem of no free lunch. And that phrase entered our vocabulary at that point. We understood, hey, you know what? There's no free lunch. And now it's just so common that we say that, hey, because there's nothing that you can get for not, I mean, it's gonna, there's always a cost to everything. It just doesn't happen that way. I, I found this out again recently. I don't know if you know this, but there's a championship baseball team in Kansas City. The Kansas City Monarchs won the whole thing this year. The guy that owns the team, he's an old, old, old friend from college. And so he said, hey, man, I want a big crowd at the game. So he gave me a stack of tickets. He said, hey, man, pass these out. So I gave them out to lots of friends. I had some left over. So before the game, I went and stood right by the box office and thought, I want to find people to come up here to buy tickets, and I want to say, hey, you know what, actually, here's a gift from the owner of the team, enjoy the game. I mean, they were great seats, box seats, the best seats you could get. I was there for half an hour. I gave away two tickets. People would not accept them because they thought this has got to be a scam. So I walked up and asked people, are you here to buy tickets? Yeah, here's some free tickets from the owner. Oh, no, 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 no. You know what? We're, we're, we're just, we're, we're just going to buy them. Really, it's, it's a gift. No, you know what? I don't know you. I don't know what this is. I mean, I couldn't give these away. Everybody was convinced there's no free lunch. You're not going to get something for nothing. And so people just constantly just know we're good. We don't want these. Something's going on here. There's going to be some type of a catch, you know, that these aren't real tickets. You're going to take money from me. I couldn't give them away. There was one guy that finally took them. He said, okay, I'll, I'll, I guess I can try them over here at the gate. If they don't work, I'll come back. But I feel obligated to at least, like, buy, buy you a beer. And I said, you know, there's, there's no strings attached. It really is a gift. But that's the way that we think about life, right? We think about, okay, there's no free lunch. We think about the yin and yang of life. We think about karma. It's like, okay, these things all come together and there's no way that we could get something for nothing. And the problem is when we carry that mindset over into our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we suddenly begin to believe that grace just can't be true. 
Because we've gone through life and we understand there's, there's no free lunch. What's grace? Grace is the unsought, undeserved, and unconditional love of God. That's what grace is to us. Grace is God pursuing us, then having the patience and the faithfulness to stay with us. But we don't really like grace. I like the words of R.C. Sproul. He puts it very, very plainly. He said, you know what? We really don't like grace. Why? Because it's a blow to our pride. Grace is too close to a handout. It's not earned. Handouts are for beggars. We don't want to live on the you know, welfare system of heaven. We want to be able to earn our own way and, atone, and to just also atone for our own sins. Why do we have a, such a hard time with grace? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And I hope that as we walk this through, that you're able to go to a new place, to just a new depth of really understanding God's grace, because it makes a massive difference in the way that we live out our life each and every day. So we're going to talk about the scandal of God's grace, the hope of God's grace, and then how to live a life of grace. So let's just start off and go through the scandal of grace. And there's a great passage. It's in Matthew chapter 20. And it's a passage which is about the scandal of grace. And there have been these stories in Matthew which have been about God's grace and his favor and just this disproportionate stuff between what he does and what we have to bring. And so he brings the story home one more time in Matthew 20. Powerful story. Let's start off in verse one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning, which would be about 6 a.m. in the morning because back then you had a workday that was 12 hours. So the workday, it starts at 6 p.m. And so he goes out to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agrees to pay them a denarius, which is like a dollar. So let's just use that word actually, dollar. So he, he agrees to pay them a dollar, which was a very generous amount. Because people would work for less than $1. They were desperate back then. So actually a dollar was a very fair, if not an overly generous wage. So they agreed to work for a dollar for the day and he sent them out to work in the vineyard. About the third hour, which is 9 a.m., he went out and he saw that there were those standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go out and you work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour, which is noon, and about the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., and he did exactly the same thing. About the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m., one hour before sunset, one hour before the workday ends, he went out and found that there were still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go out and you work in my vineyard. When evening came, 6 p.m., so it's, you know what, it's a long day, but it's the very end. The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going down to the first one. So he's going to start with those that came at 5 p.m. The workers who were hired at the 11th hour at 5 came and they each received a dollar. So when those who were hired first at 6 a.m., they expected naturally to receive more. But each one of them also received a dollar. When they received it, they began to grumble against that landowner. These men who were hired last and they worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a dollar? Take your pay and go. 
I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am so generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. It's a paradox. Some of you, you already in your heart, you don't like this story because it goes against so much of what we've been taught in life. The early bird gets the worm. If you work hard, it's going to pay off. Hey, you know what? If you just do the right things in life, there's going to be dues that are going to come to you. Some, some of you are going to cheer for the Braves in the World Series because you're still so angry about the Astros cheating that you're going to say, you know what? That wasn't fair. And you're all about fairness. You want your life to be fair. Lions should move it the same way in a supermarket. That would be the fair thing. You know, we need to have new systems for fairness. So some of you are probably angry today because you think, you know what? I come to work early. I work hard all day long and I'm one of the last ones to leave. And somebody just got a promotion that should have been mine and they come after I arrive and they leave before I leave and it's just not right. Some of you might be in the sports team and you're thinking, you know what? I am very talented and I work harder than anybody on my team and I'm not starting because we have this sense of fairness and we get so angry. And when we apply that to God's grace, it makes no sense. But some of us have been deeply impacted spiritually because we think that's how God acts. We do all of these things and he essentially owes us because of all that we have done for him. And nothing could be further from the truth. So it's a great vineyard. And back then, you didn't have banks. It was just day by day. And so you make money based upon each day's work. At the end of the day, you take money, you go buy food, and you go home and you feed your family. So can you imagine just the anxiety and the worry every single day when you're thinking, the question is not even, will I get hired this day? The question is, will I be able to feed my family at the end of the day? Will I be able to care for my family and just do these basic things? Can you imagine just the downfall, just the downcast spirit of those who were out there all day. They're willing to work. They want to work. Nobody hires them. They go home at the end of the day and their kids are there and their spouse is there. And do we have food? The answer is no, I wasn't hired today. It's a heartbreaking situation. It's a heartbreaking culture. But the scandal of grace happens in this story because there is one who owns the vineyard, who understands I'm not going to give them anything based upon what they have done. I'm going to give them things based upon what they need. I'm going to give them hope. And so we come to point two, the hope of grace. This parable is such a great story. It could be called the gracious landowner and the hope of grace. You see, this parable, in one sense, it makes no economic sense, but that's the point of it. Because the point is, the landowner is not going to give people what they have earned. He's going to give people what they need. It's not based upon the fact that you've worked these hours. It's based upon the fact that I know your needs and I know what you desperately need and I'm going to give you that. One phenomenal example of this, it still just makes me emotional, is my dad who passed away about 12 years ago. He had a bunch of apartments in Wichita and I just remember growing up watching him that there would be those that could not pay rent. They were just they were just strapped in some way. But he was committed to helping them maintain just basic dignity 
So he would create jobs that did not need to be done around the apartments just so these people could do some work and earn some money so that they could pay the rent. So this guy might have to paint this wall. And I'm thinking, Dad, wasn't that wall just painted about six months ago? He goes, yeah, it was. But we need to give these people the chance to work just to create that dignity so that they can pay their own rent. How powerful is that? That's so much of what's going on here. These people... It's not based upon what they've earned. It's based upon the fact that they need this. So I'm going to be progressively generous, not according to their work, but according to their need. You see, God calls us to serve him because we need him. It's the scandalous mathematics of God's grace. And we think, well, yeah, that that doesn't even really make sense. Of course it doesn't make sense because it's grace and that's the entire point of grace. And grace doesn't start with Jesus in the New Testament. Grace has been there all throughout the Old Testament. We could go through story after story and there's these amazing pictures and stories of God's grace and the way that he just cares for people. And you go to the book of Joel and there's this prophecy from Joel. Hey, you know what? Here's the deal. These locusts are gonna come and they're gonna absolutely wipe out the land. They're going to destroy everything. We're not going to have any food. We're not going to have anything to eat. And it's all going to be gone. And it's going to be for years. But then you're going to experience this amazing thing. God is going to restore the land. And you're going to, once again, you're going to have vineyards. And you're going to have wine that flows. And you're going to have food. And you're going to have the fruit from these plants. And then he makes this amazing promise in Joel chapter 2 and verse 25. He says this, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten the great locust and the young locust and the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent amongst you. That's incredible. That's an incredible promise I would encourage you to claim because you, you might say, well, you know what? I wish I would have become a Christian much earlier in life and I have some lost years in my life. It might be your childhood, might be the teen years. You might've had some crazy time, times in college and you think, gosh, I wish, wish I had known Jesus, maybe as a young adult, maybe as an adult. And you think, I wish I just had those years back. I wish I had trusted Jesus so much earlier in life because I feel like I have these years that were just absolutely wasted. I would encourage you to pray and just, you claim this promise, God can restore the lost years of your life. Isn't that incredible? God doesn't just say, hey, listen, you know what? Once these locusts are gone, you know what? I'm gonna make everything right. And he does say that, but then he gives this promise. You know what? And those lost years, I want to repay those and you're going to get those back. Maybe you're at the point where you're thinking, gosh, I've got lost years. I don't know how to get them back. Ask God, God, please restore the lost years than I, when I was not walking with you. That, that passage has become very personal to me, especially over the past few months because my wife and I, we have, we have some amazing children. We also have got amazing adopted children. And we have one girl, and the first year of her life was terrible. She was in a horrific orphanage and bad things. And the first year shapes so much of your life. And it's been heartbreaking just to watch her process some things that she can't remember, but they're down deep, and they've shaped her personality. They've shaped her thinking in a lot of ways. And so just to pray, God, that, that, that year, that was a lost year. God, restore that year. Please, in your grace, in your mercy, in your favor, please restore that lost year. Maybe you need to pray that for your children. Maybe you need to pray that for yourself. 
You see, in this, there's, there's the ongoing battle of guilt and grace. Just, it's just constant. Because it's humbling to realize that we didn't pay our own way. It's humbling to realize, no, I haven't done all of these things. It makes God say, well, you know what? You earned it. So you're going to get everything in the world. So here, here's a question for you. The workers that came at 5 p.m. and they only worked for one hour, how did they feel when they got a full day's wage? Well, if they lived by a philosophy of fairness, you know what? They felt guilt. They felt like, okay, we are experiencing this person's generosity, but we're not enjoying the generosity because we feel so guilty because we only work for one hour and yet we receive this full day's wage. If they were had this different philosophy and it was unmerited generosity, then they would have felt grace. They would have felt grace. And that leads to a life of humility, thankfulness, and kindness. So let's go down one more layer because I think that we need to get to that point that we understand, you know what? What we have brought to the story is nothing. So every time we hear a story like this, it's very natural that we, you know, we think, okay, in this story, I think I'm the person that came at 9 a.m. I think I'm the person that came at noon or gosh, I've walked with Jesus my whole life. You know what? I'm a 6 a.m. worker. See, that's, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to help you understand that God gave you what you could never possibly earn, what you never possibly deserved. That's why it's called grace. It was about 1998 that this story had a major impact upon my life because I began to realize maybe for the first time what time I arrived at the field to start to do work. I came about 6.02 p.m. The day was over. There was nothing I could do, which helped me to understand the only thing that I contributed to my salvation was my sin. It's the only thing I contributed was my brokenness and my sin. And when I began to understand that even though I've walked with Jesus closely for over 50 years, I'm a 6.02 p.m. worker, it became very freeing because I began to understand so much more about God's amazing generosity. It wasn't guilt, it was shame, it was just his amazing generosity. So we go to that place that's a bit deeper and we realize this. It is not the teachings of Jesus which save you, which means basically how you live. It is the actions of Jesus which save you, which means that we are saved by his grace. You see, every religion in the world operates exactly the same way. They say, you know what? I, I want to have a list. I want to have a list of things that I should do to be right with God. You know what? I want a checklist. It's like the rich young ruler comes and he says, God, I want a checklist. And I just want to be able to go through and say, yes, I've done all of these things and I feel great with God. So many people come to church because they, they want a checklist. Every religion has a checklist. So the Jews, it's the Ten Commandments. You can go through and check off all of these things. And if you're a Muslim, you've got the five pillars of Islam. I can go through and I can check off these things. I've done all of these things and it's going extremely well. If, you know what, if I'm, you know what, if I'm, I mean, like if I'm a Buddhist, I've got the eightfold path to enlightenment. I've got these eight things I have to do. If I'm a Hindu, I've got my path to self, you know, it just goes on and on. We could go through every religion in the world. Here's the sad thing. Christians oftentimes create a list as well. Christians say, you know what? I, I think there needs to be a list for you know, Christianity so we can just check things off. And I promise you there are churches in Kansas City that week after week simply go through and they present a checklist of things you have to do to be right with God. 
and it breaks my heart. They're going to have a checklist and say, hey, you know what? You need to be in church. You need to worship. You need to be involved in a small group and you need to give. Those are great things. But to make that a checklist completely misunderstands about what God has done for you and completely misunderstands grace. And then they begin to add to that list and they say, well, here's all of these other things. You really shouldn't smoke. You really shouldn't drink. You really should not gamble. Uh, you know, those things are, you probably shouldn't watch HBO for sure to watch the Cinemax. Don't watch things like the Squid Games because that's going to really mess you up in life. And you know what? You should really vote Republican and not just Republican. I mean like straight ticket Republican. And you should be anti-systemic racism. You should be anti-CRT. You should be anti-mask. You should be anti-vaccine. You should watch, you know, Fox News faithfully every day. And that's the checklist for a lot of Christians. And I think that wants to make God puke. Because here's the reality. Grace tears up the checklist. Grace tears it up because of the grace of God. Because with Christianity, there is no checklist. Or if you want to say it this way, we have a checklist, it's not a what. We have a checklist and it's a who. It's Jesus. Jesus is our checklist. If you think about a stairway up to heaven and all the things you have to do, we have a stairway to heaven and it's a person. It's Jesus. There is no list. There is no list of things you have to do. It's grace. That's what grace is. And when we create checklists, we pervert grace and we make it something it was never intended to be. That is one of the greatest messages I could ever proclaim. Jesus is the list. Jesus frees us. We are completely free in that. So let's go on and let's talk about what it means to live a life of grace. So if we have all of these things, what does it mean to actually live this out? And the best story that I could think of was a story I actually shared here about, about six or eight or so years ago when I thought, gosh, I don't want to share the same story twice because there's going to be people there who've already, who've already heard this story. But then I remembered the great quote of you know, Spurgeon when he said, if a story or a message is not worth hearing a second time, it probably wasn't worth it the first time either. <laughs> so here is a great story. It's a great story about a man named Jean Valjean, which comes up in this book, Les Miserables, which is written 160 years ago by this man named Victor Hugo. And it was always a great book. It was, it was always very, very popular. But then they came up with this musical in 1985, and the popularity just went crazy. It's the story about this man, Jean Valjean, who's a man convicted of a crime. He stole bread. And so he goes to jail for, for, for actually over 19 years and he has to labor under the whip and under chains for all this time just because he stole this bread. So he's finally paroled. He's actually released, but he's a convict. And so he has papers. And so wherever he goes, he has to show his papers. They always say, okay, you're, you know, you're going to have papers. These, this says you're a good person. You have papers. This says you're a bad person. And he can't get any work. He can't find any place to stay. He can't get a meal. He gets nothing because he has been marked by the fact that he's a convict. There's massive desperation. So finally, he shows up at this monastery and he meets a priest who is extremely kind to him and shows him graciousness and he gives him food and he gives him a bed to sleep in. He calls him brother. He treats him as a human being. And he has no category for this. He's confused by it. He doesn't grasp exactly what's happening because this person is showing him kindness, which he has never known in his entire life. 
So the first night that he's there, because he cannot believe this, he thinks, I I just have to get out of here. But before he does, he steals all of their silver, puts it in a bag and just takes off on the run. He hasn't gotten very far and he's caught and the magistrate brings him back to this monastery. He wakes up the priest and he says, this man says that you gave him all of these things as a gift. But we, we, we know that's a lie. We know that he actually stole all of these things. And so we're going to send this man to prison. He'll be there for the rest of his life. And the priest intervenes and says, no, everything I gave him was a gift. And Valjean is so confused by this. He just can't believe what he's hearing. And then the priest says, as a matter of fact, you forgot the candlesticks, the most valuable thing that we have here. You forgot these. And he takes these two beautiful candlesticks and puts them in the bag as well. Valjean just doesn't have any category for what's just happened. It's grace, and he cannot understand it. So in the musical, they have this incredibly powerful song where he's wrestling with the grace that he's been shown, but he's also just wrestling through all of these things in his life experience, and he can't put it together, and he asks some very important questions. This is awkward, but I've been working for months just to sing this to you. So if you just would... Get ready. <clears throat> I'm going to, okay, I'm teasing. Maybe Hugh Jackman can do it a little bit better. Let's watch this. I've seen that story a hundred times. I've watched that clip and I still get goosebumps every time. It still makes me emotional because it's so powerful. A new story must begin. Maybe that's where you are this morning. I need a new story. Gosh, after the second service, I spoke with a woman. She said, that's, that's it. I need a new story. I'm desperate for a new story. Maybe that's where you are. The words of Valjean, one word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside of me like a knife. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know what spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? Here's the answer. Yes, there is another way to go. It's the way of grace as opposed to to the law. And it is this grace that Valjean grabs onto and holds onto and lives out his life after this. He is still a broken person. He is not superhuman. He will still make mistakes. But after this point in life, his life is going to be fueled more by gratitude than greed, more by giving than than by receiving, more by love than by fear. This one moment of grace changes him in a way that no punishment ever possibly could. He is changed by gospel grace, by the finished work of Jesus. Listen closely. The law exposes Valjean and it exposes us. Grace grace exonerates him. The law diagnoses him, but the grace that comes, it delivers him. The law accuses him, but the gospel acquits. Do you know that the primary job of Satan is not to tempt you? The primary job of Satan is to accuse you and to shame you and to make you feel guilt. So the accusations come, the gospel acquits. The law says curse, the gospel says no, you're blessed. The law says you're a slave, the gospel says you're a son and you're a daughter. The law says you are guilty, but the gospel says you are forgiven. The law can break a hard heart, 
but only grace and the gospel can heal a hard heart, which is precisely what happens to Valjean. And we're moved by that story. It's a fictional story. So why are we so moved? Because it's the story of each one of us here. We long to be treated with grace. We long to be shown that extent of grace and kindness because we long for that in our heart. We know that we deserve reproach and yet we're asking God, Jesus, please show me grace. And it all points to the finished work of Jesus. It all points to the cross. Is there a free lunch? No, there's not a free lunch. So what's the cost? The cost was not anything that you have done. The cost is not a list that you have gone down. The list is Jesus and the cost was borne by Jesus. The cost is his blood and his life upon a cross for you. That's the gift. That's the cost. It's amazing, but I think the Lord knew that we would constantly forget this. And so over and over he goes. But let me just say, there is an important caution in here. And the important caution is this. Grace does not excuse us from godliness. It drives us into obedience. But it's the motive that becomes so different. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. Nothing. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you less. That's the truth. So we have to understand that once we understand grace, it drives us into obedience. So do we obey so that God will love us? No, we obey because God loves us. It's not to activate his grace, it's a response to his grace. So we do these things just to respond to it, but we know that these things can absolutely never change. But we forget this over and over again. And so that's why in the word of God, the very last verse in Revelation, the last word in the Bible, you think, okay, this is the last word. It's gonna have to say something really important. The very last verse in the Bible is this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people, amen. I know you're gonna forget this, so at the very end, hey, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people, amen. We need to understand grace and how God responds to us. So in closing, I had a pastor call me and say, hey, can we spend a few hours on the phone? I said, sure, this, you know, this is a guy and he said he was struggling and he has a church in North Carolina. He said he had issues with his family, his marriage, his church, and his own heart. So that week we talked for hours and he starts off and he just begins to sob immediately. He says, hey, listen, I have a daughter who we don't know where she is. Uh, We think she's in Atlanta. We've been to Atlanta over and over again, just looking for her. We've heard from her friends that she's into some terrible things. She's doing some horrific things. And so I've gone into some of the worst places in Atlanta. I've been into some very seedy back alleys. We've looked in these places. We can't find her. And he said, I just want to tell my daughter that I love her. I just want to embrace her and say that even though you've done all these things, I love you, I'm your father, I'm here for you. And he's just sobbing, heartbreaking story. But he shares about his marriage and says there's so many issues in the marriage and takes about a half an hour to go through all that. And then he shares about his church and the fact that that there's some elders that have left and he's just broken up about that. And then he comes to his own life and he says, I feel like I am so far from God right now. I feel like I have done so many terrible things in life. I I feel like God wants nothing to do with me because of the depth of my sin. I feel isolated. I feel alone. I feel abandoned. And I just feel like God's like, I'm done with you. You've done all of these things. I'm done with you. I gave you a chance and you blew it. I'm done. 
And he said, I've got nothing. I don't have God. I don't have my family. My marriage is falling apart, and I think I'm going to lose my church. I've got nothing. I've got nothing, including God. Took him about two hours to tell this story, and I had just not actually responded much. I just listened. So after two hours, he said, so what do you think? And I just prayed prayed for wisdom in that moment. And I just said, well, based upon what you told me these past two hours, I think you're like the father of the year and God pretty much sucks as a father. He said, excuse me? I said, I think you're like the father of the year. And I think God pretty much sucks as a father. He said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, well, about two hours ago, you told me about your daughter. You told me how you pursued your daughter. You told me about the trips to Atlanta to look for her. And you were sobbing as you told me how you just wanted to embrace her. You wanted to tell her how much you love her. You wanted to tell her that her sin is actually drawing you to her. And you are there. You care for her. You're her dad. You want to do anything you can for her. And yet when it came to you and your sin, your sin pushes God away. You said God wants nothing to do with you. God's not going to pursue you. God's not going to look for you. God's going to abandon you. So based upon that philosophy and what you said, I just concluded you're a pretty good dad and God is not. It's quiet for about a minute on the phone. That's a long time on a phone call to go silent. And then I can hear some sobs. And then I heard these exact words. Dude, I have never thought about that in my entire life. It's the gospel. It's just gospel grace. And he'd missed it. Some of you just need to hear, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, God is pursuing you today. He loves you. You think, no, my sin has repulsed him. God is pursuing you today and he longs to wrap his arms around you. He longs to give you new life, new beginning, new hope, new purpose. And it's only because of the scandal of grace. And it's only because of the fact that Jesus has paid the price. Some of you need this. Some of you desperately need a new story this morning. Some of you need to be reminded of the fact that every day with Jesus is a new beginning. It's a new story. So I want to pray. And as I pray, I would just ask you to just think and to pray in your heart, God, is is this something that I desperately need? Have I... Have have I misunderstood grace? Do I have a checklist of all these things I have to do to be right with you? God, today I want to just receive this amazing gift that you offer me, gospel grace, paid for with the blood of Jesus. And it's a gift that I have to receive. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the amazing gift of grace. It's hard for us to comprehend because we, we live in a world where we're taught everything but grace. We're taught uh, there's nothing free. You got to work hard for everything you get. We have a lot of checklists in life. That's just the way that we've been raised. But Father, I pray for those here today that desperately need to have a new story. I pray that they would experience that in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would experience this freshness and this newness. And I pray that they would give their lives to you. 
understanding that the cost has been paid fully by Jesus. Father, I pray that grace would make us thankful and kind and generous. Father, Satan is going to whisper lies into our ears and say this isn't true. He's going to shame us. He's going to accuse us. He's going to heap guilt upon us. But I pray that gospel grace would take all of that away and that we would see the truth that Jesus Christ has done it all. Thank you for that. Father, bring new life today. Bring new stories. Bring new hope. We need it. We're desperate for it. We ask this for our good and for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, the head of this church, we pray. Amen.